Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we are also joined by Michaela Hempen, who's one of my Click the Teaches coaches. And Michaela, people have met you before because you organized the summer adventure to Germany and Italy. So we did the postcard from Germany and Italy podcast together. But today I invited you to join Dominique and I in a conversation about how the research is done when we're looking at behavioral analysis. And the reason that I invited you and asked you to talk about this was because originally this type of study really puzzled you. So before we jump into the how these studies are structured, could you sh- share a little bit of your background in what you do in what I always refer to as the real world? Because in your when you wear your other hat, as it were, it's a very different kind of study. It's the group studies that you were familiar with. So can you talk a little bit about that world and what how those studies are run and what they're for? Sure. Uh, yes, so actually in the real world where I uh, work every day is I, um, well, I'm a scientist. Um, I am a veterinarian by background. I studied veterinary medicine and did a PhD. And um, I did several several things uh, and currently I'm working in in food safety risk assessment. So um, I'm a scientific officer and um, science is my daily bread. And I'm also have also a master in equine science, which I did in my free time. And um, these are basically all the, the field of science is um, medicine, biology, veterinary science in that field, which is different from applied behavior analysis. So in our field, we work with mostly with group designs. And um, if you're not, a, a, you work in science maybe, um, but you're not, a, say the first thing you learn if you start in science, if you look at uh, publications, you will look at the, the sample size. That will be the first thing you look at. And you want a, a large sample size. So you would look at, depending on what, what your study ob- object is, but say you look at the sample size of 100 or 50 or 500 or 5,000. So you want large numbers. And then usually these are group designs. So we, um, you, if you want, you want to compare different factors. For example, you want to compare an intervention. So or you want to compare why an animal gets sick or why a person gets sick or which food is um, creating health problems, for example. So you would look at different groups. So you have, for example, group A, which is uh, maybe your, your, your baseline, your, your, your comparator, which is uh, a group of, say, in let's talk horses. So in horses, for some reasons, the group size is often four or the bigger ones are eight. So for some reason, they have group A with eight horses and then they have group B with also eight horses. And usually you would try to 
have the populations similar. So if you have, for example, eight mares, you would have on the other side also eight mares, or you have four mares and four geldings. And in the other group, you would also have four mares, four geldings. You would try to have them in the same age group or the same breed so that you compare group A with group B. And then you would try to, um, for example, change something in the B group, whatever you, you are observing. So you can change the feeding or you could give uh, a certain drug or you can change whatever. So you're, you're comparing group A with group B. And then um, you have a certain number of repetitions or you a certain time period that you are measuring. And then what you normally do is the eight horses that was in group A, you put all the measures, measurements together and you divide by eight. And you do the same thing in the other group. And then you look at the outcome between the average of group A with the average of group B. And that gives you then an indication of uh, the impact of your manipulation in group B, for example, was this is measured then with statistics. Was it um, significant that change or it wasn't? And if it, it's not significant in terms of statistics, then usually people will tell you, oh, you have to increase the sample size. So instead of eight and eight, you'd have to do 20 and 20, and then you do the same thing again. That would be our, our world, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. And I remember when we were first talking about the single subject design, and when you were uh, beginning to look at this field of behavioral analysis and looking at some of the work that Jesus was sharing with us, you were really puzzled. How can you, how can you do a study with, with just one subject? How does this work? And I, re I remember we had quite a number of email exchanges back and forth as this, this is really puzzling. This is not what I learned. So, yes. yeah. So can you... Actually, it was, I think it was the Poison Q or another one. And there were actually not even only one, there were four. I think they had five, five dogs and one dropped out and they were left with four. Or it was four and one dropped out and they were left with three in the paper that I read. And then, yeah, I was really puzzled. <laughs> how this is, how can this be valid? You know, because we are, yeah, I wasn't used to that type of study. And I've certainly seen on the internet, I've seen when people have watched or the Poison Q DVD, or they've gone back and looked at uh, Nicole Murray's uh, uh, thesis, and then they've made the same comment. But how can this work? There's only one dog. How can you draw any kind of valid conclusions when you have only one subject? This this can't this can't be valid. So that was the puzzle that you were faced with coming from the world in which it was group designs. So how did you work your way through what were what were some of the references that helped you to understand single subject design and can you describe single subject design and how it works? Well, I can't track back exactly my my process or how I came to uh, love it as a study design. And uh, I converted totally <laughs> to <laughs> think we can actually drop all the group designs and do only single subject <laughs> designs. No, that's of course not true. I mean, every design has its purpose. But um, in terms of applications, so if you if you want to actually solve a problem, I find that the single subject design is far superior. 
But okay, so how did I? A good reference, I think, and I brought the book here next to me, which you can't see, but it's called Single Case Experimental Design by Michael Herson and David Barlow. And this is, as Jesus has said in one of the webinars, you go to the old books and there are many, um, many editions. And I think I have the version from 1976. And um, this is a book that has, I'll tell you, 400 pages. And it's one of the few textbooks that is uh, that I read from cover to cover. And, and at the first, I mean, it's not statistics because in single subject designs, we don't talk about statistics, but imagine a statistics book that is not really statistics, but in, in that sense, you know, study design textbook. And I read it from cover to cover, 400 pages. And I was really intrigued. So we, we don't talk only about, you know, there's one single subject design. I mean, obviously there are lots of variations and there's even a chapter on statistics yes. actually. So. So, so, so the name of the book again is is what? Single case experimental designs. And it's not that we're we're recommending to people or saying to people, oh, you must all go out and buy a copy of this book, but it is good to reference back for people who are interested, so that that is available. So the next piece of this is what is a single subject design? How does it work? Well, it works as I said before in the group design. We have two groups. So one of them is the one that you are um, observing. That's your, say your interest, your research interest. And the other group is your comparator, is your, your baseline. So you would, because you, to measure an effect of whatever intervention you are testing, you would need a baseline. If not, you don't know if has, there's been some change if you don't compare it to something. And in a group design, that would be group A versus group B. Group A is your control. Yes, group A is your control, group B. These things that we hear all the time in the news of oh, the studies that say this kind of food is good for you or this kind of, that, that uh, caffeine is really great for you or caffeine is really bad for you, that, that they have a control group and then in the other group they drink oceans of coffee and look at the, the difference. Well, I don't want to go into these details because <laughs> they often don't have a control group and their outcome or their conclusions are therefore doubtful. But maybe okay. that's a different topic. Yes, so, yes, totally because different Because actually that's a problem in, in, if you are, in that case, actually you should probably also look at uh, individual designs, single subject designs, because for one particular person, coffee may be just the best. And for another person, it may not be the best. So if we don't talk about long-term effects, but you talk about short effects, say this person, you know, is more awake after drinking a cup of coffee, actually a single subject design would be better than a group design. I'm just sort of chuckling because I was just having a conversation with somebody who had a headache and she was drinking coffee to get rid of her headache. And the people I know, they gives them headaches. So, it, so you really do need the single subject design. So, it's a, it's a yes. what what we say is it's a study of one. So again, how do single subject designs work? And then how? So there there are two questions really. How do they work? And then how do we use what they show us to draw? out more general applications from that study. So the important thing, if you want to do 
you know, science and science in that, I mean, even your own home science, you know, you go to your horse and you test something that for me is also science. So you, you, yes. what you need to understand is that you need a control. Your control is your reference. It's your starting point. And, you know, it's like going around a cone, a circle of cones. You have the cones there as your reference point as your horse is drifting. You need that reference point to realize that your horse is drifting. If you don't have yes. the cone there, you would just drift with your horse and you would never even know that you're drifting. And the same in science. So you need your, your control, you need your reference point. So in a single subject design, you're comparing different conditions. So in, with the same individual, so yeah, um, start with a baseline. You are observing, say we are observing a horse and, um, for a certain period of time, 10 minutes, I'm observing the horse and I take my measurements of the behavior that I'm interested in. So say the horse is pawing, say I'm just observing the horse in the field and I see him pawing for 10 minutes and I can count how many pawings I observe in that time. That would be my baseline. And then uh, after that, I can create another condition where I still observe the same behavior. So I'm still observe pawing, but I changed something. Say my intervention is I play Mozart. And then I observe the pawing. Has the frequency of pawing changed under this condition? So this would be just a comparison of before and after. So my control is the baseline and my intervention is the Mozart. I have not changed anything except playing the music. So you change only one criterion. And then I can see has it increased or has it decreased or did it have no effect at all? And that would be translated an A, B design. So I'm comparing condition A with condition B. Now that in itself is not yet quite as sophisticated. So what's even better is that if you follow the B condition and you repeat the baseline again, so you switch off the music and you are in the same condition as when you started. So you have pawing in the field, then you play Mozart and observe pawing in the field and you go back to no music and observe the pawing in the field. And then you could see, for example, in 10 minutes, your horse was pawing 10 times in A. In the second condition, your horse was pawing only twice. And if you go back to baseline, you go back to 10 points in the 10 minutes. So the, the two A's before and after are your controls and your intervention was the B, so the, where you played uh, the music and it had an influence. And the fact that the, the frequency of pawing went up again after the intervention gives you an indication that playing the music had some sort of effect on, on the pawing at that moment on that horse. So we don't really know why Mozart in particular has that effect, but we can observe that it seems to. Exactly. Well, usually at the end of a research, it says more research is necessary. That's always the case. <laughs> yeah, but it certainly, if, if, if you had that condition, it would certainly raise a lot of other questions, which you could then test, couldn't That's you? That's right. Exactly. That's why more research is necessary. Can you give us like real examples that you've tried maybe with your own animals? Um, actually, I'm waiting for a student to send me uh, videos exactly on that. As an example, you know, so that people can also do, do at home. So she um, sent me a video for video coaching and I looked at the way she was uh, giving the, the food. And then I asked her, I said, can you, 
can you send me videos where the first five minutes you are feeding as you are feeding and then in the next five minutes feed slow motion try to feed really 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 slow and then go back to what you've done before and do again a, a second time feeding really 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 slow and then we look together at the videos and see how the horse is behaving I haven't seen the videos yet, but I'm super curious how they would look like. In clinics, people will often, the people who know me well, they know the phrase, just for fun. What that means is, let's do a small test of, of an A-B condition. Your horse is, and we'll use the food delivery, is mugging you. And through the coaching, I've gotten you to change slightly how you deliver the food and the mugging behavior is much reduced. So I will ask somebody to, can you go back and do what you were just doing? Can you do it the way you were doing it before we clean things up? And that's a way of testing. Is this really making a difference? Because if it's not making a difference, there's no point in fussing the details and trying to remember to change an old habit. Because if you've, if you've got the habit pattern of, feeding fast or feeding low or feeding so the horse's head is off to the side, whatever it is, and it's not making any difference, you don't need to go through the effort of changing. But if we can see that it makes a very real difference, then it's worth making that change. And to have the control of your movements to be able to do to, to feed one way and then to feed the other, is a, it's a real skill. In the online course, some of the video clips that I show of Amanda Martin, one of the reasons that I so enjoy those video clips is that Amanda had the body control to be able to do a technique one way and then to do it another way, which might not be as good or might be a common mistake people make. And then she could go back and do it the clean way. And she was working with her own horses who were resilient learners and we could see a really clear difference in the horses when she fed out when when she was out of balance for example when she fed and then we could see the difference that it made in her horses when she was in balance so that ability it's it, it's such a nice example of the ab design the aba design and a way of testing does this make a difference for my horse? So Alex, you say, I, I've heard you say many times, go to people for opinion and go to horses for answers. And this, this study design is a way to give structure around this idea of going to horses for answers. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because sometimes we guess or we have hypothesis about why our animals do what they do. But this gives structure around investigating what's really happening. I have a, one that, that sort of makes me chuckle. In my barn, the, the horses, the, the doors are open. So the horses can wander in and out and go wherever they want. And at different times of the year, they use their habitat, as we'll call it. They use different parts of the barn environment. So in the, in the summer, in the really hot months, 
In the afternoon, you'll always find them in the barn aisle because there's almost always a breeze. And Robin always will be standing in front of the third stall in. That's where he stands. And I've observed this now over a period of years. But we had uh, someone who was who had her horse in the barn for a period of time. And her mare was in that stall. And she made the comment of, oh, Robin is really becoming good friends with my horse. And I had to say, they may well be becoming good friends, but that's not why Robin is standing there. Robin would stand there whether, no matter what horse was in the stall, or even if the stall was empty. Because, and that's, that's data I've collected over a period of time. So to make the, to conclude that Robin was friends with this horse, you would have to test that further. And one way that you could test it would be to take that horse out of the stall and see where, does if, if we moved her down to the end stall, does Robin move down and stand next to her? Or does he stay in the spot next to the empty stall where there's, for whatever reason, there's a better breeze or he's further away from where the flies gather? I don't know what the particular parameter is, but I don't think it's because he wants to be next to that particular horse. And that's an important piece to know because if I started to think, oh, they're good friends because they stand next to one another and I turn them out together, I may discover that they're actually not such good friends. So I'd want to test that before I did the intro. So I have a few questions, Michaela. If you have ABA, and let's say to go back to your example, your prior example of pawing, you had 10, the frequency of 10 uh, in the baseline, then two pawing while playing Mozart. What happens if you don't get 10 again when you go back to the baseline? You get, I don't know, four. How do you interpret that? Well, um... Also a big difference between um, what I'm used to and the single subject design is that these data are analyzed mostly visually, so graphically. Whereas in what I'm used to, you, we use uh, statistics and there's a certain cutoff value that is arbitrarily chosen and uh, at which it's decided that uh, your intervention uh, had an effect or didn't have an effect and in um, well I'm not an expert uh, in <laughs> in single subject design but from what I understand is you're looking at the graph if it's not clear that means it had no effect or it's the effect was too small and what I like about that is that the single subject design is for applied behavior analysis so it's to find a treatment for behavioral you know problems or to find an intervention that has an effect on the behavior. So mm. they are saying that mm. if, you know, you may, with mathematical me methods, you, you, you may be able to find an effect, but you can't see it in a graph. That means that for the person for, for who you are trying to find a solution, it doesn't help. So mm -hmm. if you don't see mm -hmm. the, the, you want to see big effects. So if I have right. condition right. A very high, condition B very low, 
then your assumption that this treatment may be beneficial for your patient um, is, is, is a valid one. But if you are looking at numbers and, you know, statistically relevant, yes or no, and cutoff values, all of this is irrelevant because you want a big effect, not a right, small right, one. Right. You, you would show it graphically. And if you really see that the, the behavior drops down and goes up again, that means that you, you are on a, on, a, on a good road. You will, you will, you know, you, you can, you can test that intervention further. If you are, if you, if say it, it doesn't go back up to before or it's not clear it means that you have to continue testing you have not yet found uh, the, the the key basically to solve the problem right and how how can you help yourself in making sure you're changing only one criteria because i suspect that may be difficult sometimes that we're not even aware uh how can you try to circumvent and make sure that you're not changing many things at the same time. Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, well, it's you know, it's a little bit like when someone says, concentrate on your breathing, and all of a sudden, you're not breathing normally anymore. <laughs> yeah, sure, you can't. Uh, yeah. I don't know, the best is to to keep you know, every, well, you're not controlling the animal. So the animal, you know, is in his environment. So you keep, for example, the same environment. If you have to be in the setting, then you would have to make sure you wear the same clothes, maybe go the same time of day. So if mm -hmm. the animal has been fed always at 12 noon, then make sure you always go at two o'clock, for example, every day at the same time. So it's obvious it's about the same things. Try to do it uh, where there are fewer people coming in and out of the stall. So you wear the same clothes. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a bit. Of course, we are not working in the lab, so we are. You have to make a bit of some, yeah, compromises. So, so let me jump in. Um, so part of the reason that I wanted to start with the single subject design was because you've been using single subject design to look at the question of cribbing and what can we do to help horses that crib. And I know that for many people, cribbing is a huge nightmare problem that they have with their horses because cribbing has been correlated with health effects. It certainly is annoying when you have a very active cribber in the barn and you've been doing a study on cribbing. And what I would like to do is stop here with the cliffhanger because you've, you've gotten some really interesting results using the single subject design and the applied to uh, cribbing. And we'll stop for today and pick up in our next podcast with a discussion of cribbing, what it is, and what possible interventions you've been looking at through the single subject design. So does that sound like a good plan? Very good plan, but I want to throw in one piece to reonorate my profession because um, I was at a conference last week and actually last week on the 28th, a paper has been published on PLOS biology, which is openly accessible. And in this paper, I have, I have put it here on the screen and I read to you one of the one sentence. 
So it's about, um, the paper is about, um, it's looking at E. coli cells. So it's a, you know, a bacterium and they um, have actually observed a single individual bacterium and they have found epigenetic memory transfer. So um, it's, it's rather complicated, but it's super, super interesting. And I'm just reading this sentence because uh, I think it, um, it highlights that also in, in the life sciences, in, in the meds, meds, medical field, they are now moving towards, it's not a single subject design as such, but they have realized that we have to look at the, the study of one, you know, at the individual. Yes. So that sentence says, aside from their remarkable pattern of emergence, the slow and limited post-stress disaggregation of da 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 da, never mind, over multiple generations also represents cellular behavior that previously remained undetected using population level determinations of aggregated blah 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 blah. So what they're saying is looking at bacteria, we've been looking at populations. So even within the yes. same species, we looked at a colony. So we looked at the, the behavior of the colony. And now the science has come to a point where they say, because we always look at averages, we have, we have not realized what's actually happening. We have to go, we have to go to individual cells. And what they've done is so amazing. They have done, they, they have filmed an individual cell, they have isolated individual bacterial cells, filmed them as they are um, multiplying. So as they are dividing, you know, into two, four and so yes. on cells. So one single cell and they have found how they are um, dividing and that it's actually not, you know, 50-50 and all the same, but they are dividing. Um, so, so one sibling is not the same as the other sibling. They are different. And this difference is important. It's an important difference because one sibling is more resistant to heat stress than the other one. And this um, epigenetic memory, so this ability of resisting heat stress, actually after they, they learn to become more resistant against heat after they have experienced sublethal heat, so they have not died from it, they learned in a way, I say learned, and they take that, the, give that to their siblings one part of them so they divide some of them become more heat resistant than the others and this is very important because if you think of diseases and who knows maybe even uh, antibiotic resistance this may be very relevant because one bacteria daughter cell is not the same as the other daughter cell even though we always thought that you know they just split and are the same they are not the same <laughs> and we have missed that because we looked at populations we didn't look at individual cells that's really amazing. Wow. It is fa it's a fascinating planet that we live on. It def definitely yeah. is. And so this, this, that's the point of talking about this, because we talk a lot about things, studies such as the, the Poison Q study. Of course, it was done with one dog. And it was, it's been an important study in helping us to understand the impact of ambiguity and uncertainty. But it was one dog. And if we don't understand how the single subject design studies work, 
it's very hard to look at that study and say that we can draw any conclusions from it whatsoever, because if we're thinking that we have to look at large sample size and large populations, we're not going to be able to wrap our minds around what that study was showing us. And that's why I thought that having you go through the cribbing study would be really helpful. So it's not just for people who are interested in cribbing, but it's for all of us who are interested in how do we, especially when we have a behavior that is problematic, a horse that bites, a horse that paws, the all of the stereotypic behaviors that some that we see in particularly in stabled horses. When we want to figure out the function of that behavior or what is an intervention that will shift that behavior, understanding the single subject design is really important. And it doesn't stop there. It just goes on and on and on uh, in terms of the, what you were describing in our handling skills. Does this make a difference when we're riding? If I'm leaning a little behind the vertical or leaning a little ahead of the vertical, what is the impact that that has on my horse? How can I test it? The, the other thing um, it highlights is that we, we focus more on antecedents instead of just looking at consequences. You know, very often um, when you see a behavior maybe falling apart and then you think about, oh, I have to give higher value treats. Yes. But actually, look at the antecedents. So in single subject designs, you are changing the environment. Of course, that includes in the way, if you want to say maybe uh, environment includes um, consequences. But in this setup, you're not talking about consequences. You're talking about antecedents. What's the environment? How, what can I change in the environment? How does the antecedent influence the behavior? And it makes us a bit more aware of what's the environment I'm working in, what, how am I behaving? You know, rather than just focusing on the on the consequences. But could you not also do it with the consequence varying? Yes, but uh, I think it's often forgotten when we always talk about click treat, click treat. So we are very focused on initially. We're very focused on on what treat and how much. And you often hear that people having problems. They say, "Oh, my horse doesn't like the treat," but maybe that's not the problem. So also open your, you know, it, it's ABC, it's the whole contingency. So you have to look also at the antecedents and don't, don't forget it may actually be more important than the consequences. Right. And or that I can solve everything by just giving treats. But there's and and again, and we've talked about this, giving treat is not just giving treats because it's a whole area that you could be looking at if you're giving treat in a hasty, frenetic way is not the same as if you're giving treats in a very calm and uh, well thought out way. Or that we forget that treat is really shorthand and slang for reinforcement. And yeah. it's and and it is not limited. Reinforcement is not limited to food. So we need to look more broadly at what is reinforcing the behavior. And and food could actually be not reinforcing in certain instances if we wanted to make it a little more complicated. <laughs> because you can have sometimes food that means, you know, that may not have at this moment, let's say the animal just ate a bowl full of treat and you're offering it 
the same tree. So reinforcement varies too. That's right. Or that yeah. that what I want is distance from something in the environment. And giving me food right. doesn't make me feel safer. Right. So yeah, I like the treats under most circumstances. But right now, what I really want is to be further away from that flapping plastic over there. And but in in, in what we're because the laws of learning are the same for everyone. But we always say behavior analysis is this is the study of one because everyone has a different learning history, and that's what makes everyone unique. And so with these study design, you can study your animal uh, and his specific learning history um, and compare it and try to make interventions that are really, or it helps you to be more objective in your assessment of the situation. Yes, yes. So shall we say goodbye for I, now? Because I, I, I can't, yeah. I can't I, wait for the cribbing. I know, I know. And of course, we're very lucky because we're not actually going to let Michaela go. We're going to keep her right here and we're going to jump straight into the, the discussion of cribbing. But we're going to make everybody else wait a week before we, we jump back into the cribbing. So we're going to say goodbye for now knowing that actually the three of us aren't saying goodbye at all. We're just continuing the conversation. This podcast on single subject design seems like the perfect time to talk about our upcoming webinar with Dr. Susan Friedman. Susan was a psychology professor at the University of Utah. Her niche was introducing people to behavior analysis. I was chatting with her recently, and she was talking about how her focus has been on basics. It's Behavioral Analysis 101. I totally understand how absorbing all that is, because my focus is so very much on the core foundation work of clicker training. I could very much relate to her interest in the basics, and no matter how much you study the basics, there's always more to discover. So it's endlessly fascinating to stay in that that sort of beginning layer and just keep looking at deeper and deeper at the depths of it. And I commented to Susan that both of us have definitely gone on and trained to the advanced levels. She's done that with people and I've certainly done that with my own personal horses, and I've helped many clients move into the advanced work with their own horses. But that that delving deep into what the core foundation can give you is a real fascination for both of us. So for Susan, she's very comfortable saying that her niche, her area of interest, is Behavioral Analysis 101. So when we talked about what we wanted to cover in the webinar, what topics we thought people might enjoy, Susan suggested that we focus on the core basics. What do people need to know about behavioral analysis that will help them to be better trainers? That's the question that we want to start out with in the webinar. That's going to be our starting point. 
Susan also talked about the kind of discussion formats that she most enjoys. She likes interviews where the interviewer lets the expert talk about what they are expert in. So not the kind of casual once-over overview of a subject, but a real let's explore in depth what you have to offer from a lifetime of study. So my goal with these webinars is to give our guest speakers the time and the freedom to expand beyond what would be their normal conference presentations. What is the more that they would love to talk about if they had the luxury of time? And that's something you, you don't have with most conference formats. You're given a set time slot. You have 45 minutes, you have an hour, you have an hour and a half to speak, and you, you prepare carefully a unit of information, and you design a program that is going to fit well within that time frame. And because of the time constraints, there, there really isn't time to follow a thread off in a slightly different direction or to answer a question that takes you off on this tangent. Not if you want to get through all of your slides. But in the webinars, we have a very different format and a different intent. So with the webinars, we have a launching point, but that's all that it is. Dominique and I want to have a real conversation with our guests. And in the best conversations, it's the questions that move us along into what is sometimes very new territory for all of us. The coming together of a group of people at, and the questions, uh, the stories that we all share, the comments that we make, that moves the information along in a way that takes us beyond the standard conference format. So even if you've heard Susan speak before on the subject of Behavioral Analysis 101, what you may discover in this is that you'll hear things in a way that you haven't heard before, or we move into an area that, because of the questions, because of the comments that are made, that opens up something that perhaps we haven't thought about exploring in quite that way before. So it could be quite exciting. And I hope you'll join us for this webinar. It's going to be on Saturday, September 29th at 1.30 Eastern Time. We're going to be recording it, so if you can't join us for the live event, you can listen to it afterwards. But if you can join us, you may find yourself jumping into the conversation with your own questions and comments about Behavioral Analysis 101. It's always a study of one. And as the expression goes, the rat is always right. However strange and peculiar a response may seem to us, behavior serves a function that makes sense to the animal. And Susan can help us learn how to make sense of the behavior we're seeing. And she can help us design effective and humane interventions for our horses. So whether it's 
a behavioral issue that we would like to change or simply that we want to move our training along to achieve our, our performance goals, an understanding of behavioral analysis can help us to get there. And Susan's presentations definitely, for me, help to clarify so much of why my horses are giving me the responses that I'm, that I'm seeing and how to structure my training so it's even clearer to them. And that's what we'll be exploring in this webinar. So again, it's Saturday, September 29th at 1.30 Eastern Time. And just go to equiosity.com to register. I hope you'll join us for the webinar. And next week, we'll have a new podcast for you. So until then, have fun with your training.